Good evening, everyone. I'm glad you're here. It's nice to see every one of you. This evening's message is called, What Are You Doing Under a Bushel? I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. That's Exodus chapter 3. In the very first verse in the Bible, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. It does not say, and please notice, it does not say, In the beginning, God, period. Because God has no beginning. The concept of beginnings came with God's creation. And all that he created, we are told, was very, very good. But because there was no beginning, because God himself is eternal, he knew what would happen to his creation. Because God does not exist in the realm of time. God lives in eternal dimensions. In Exodus uh, chapter 3, that's where I had you turn, God calls himself the great I Am. Well, the words the great is not there. Let Look at verse 14 together. And God said to Moses, and here's the story, of course. Um, Moses had left Egypt 40 years before. Now he'd been a herd boy, a shepherd for these 40 years. And one day he's in the fields with his sheep and he comes to a tree that's burning. We call it the burning bush. The bush is burning, but the bush is not burning. The, there's flames surrounding it, but the, bur- the bush is not disintegrating at all. And so Moses approaches this bush trying to see what's going on and from the bush a voice comes and it is the voice of God. And God says, I have appointed you to go back to Egypt and to deliver these people. Now Moses is thinking to himself, well, you know, how am I going to do that? I'm going to go over there and just show up and say, here I am, I'm here to deliver you. The people are going to say, who in the world are you? Or who sent you? And so that was his question for God. Who am I going to tell these people sent me so that they will believe? And Jesus or God said in verse 14, And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me. Okay? God is the great eternal one. He encompasses all times at once. He exists at once in the forever in the past, forever in the future. He exists presently today. Therefore, he knows all that's going to happen in the future. And so he knew when he created Lucifer, what Lucifer would do, that he would make a devil of himself. He knew that one third of the angels would follow after Lucifer. He knew that on earth here, Adam and Eve with, would doubt God and would believe the serpent instead. And so that leaves us with an amazing question that we need to ask ourselves. If God knew all of that, why did he allow events to develop as they did? Why did he allow rebellion? Why did he allow war to be in heaven or the degeneration of the race that's happening here on earth? Why did he allow pain and suffering and sorrow and crime and disaster? Can I tell you why? And friends, you're not going to like the answer. Well, maybe you will like the answer, but you're not going to understand the answer. You're going to find it hard to believe. But the real reason God allowed all of this is because God needed it to happen that way. You see, God created all his intelligent beings with the power of choice. He made all of his intelligent beings free moral agents. They didn't only have the power to choose between whether they would eat an apple or an orange, they all, he also gave them the power to choose between right and wrong. But the only problem was there was no wrong. There was only a right. There was no way for them to demonstrate their love for God if there was no way to rebel. 
And so God gave them the power to choose. God gave them to be free moral agents. And he had to organize a system by, by which these people were not only willing and allowed to love him, but they were should be allowed also, if they choose, by choice, they should be allowed to rebel against him as well. Now listen, God did not want them to rebel. God did not organize it so that they would rebel, but he did give them the power of choice. Think for a minute what the odds were against God. If God had created only one being with the power of choice and an eternity of time, what are the odds that that one person would toy with the power of choice to choose against God at least once in an eternity of time? Well, it's not inevitable, but it's almost inevitable. Ah, but friends, listen, God did not create just one being. He created millions upon millions of beings so then now what are the odds that one wouldn't decide to use his power of choice to rebel against God? Given that he has all the freedom to do so and given that he has an eternity of, an eternity of time in which to do so. You see, it had become inevitable and God knew it. My friends, God needed it. The universe needed it. You and I needed it. And because when it's all over, when every being has gotten eternal life, when every, be, every being that will get eternal life will know that sin is terribly bad and God is wonderfully great and good. And even though the beings that will be found in heaven and have eternal life will still have the power of choice, will still be free moral agents, they will never again choose to hurt God and to disobey Him. So I'll have you turn now to Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 9 in Nahum chapter 1. And it says there, What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make another end of affliction. Uh, excuse me. He will make another end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Why? Because God has allowed evil to reveal itself fully for what it is. And God has also revealed himself and his great love for the fallen race so fully that when it comes to that point in time, the whole universe at that point is going to say God is good, sin is bad, and we were, were just not going to go there again ever. And friends, this is what, of course, the sanctuary has been trying to teach us. The sanctuary was uh, created by God for the very purpose of solving the sin problem. A man may be out there in the tents out there in what is represented by, what the world is represented by out there in the tents. Somebody has sinned. Somebody has done something wrong. That somebody takes a lamb with him and he crosses that great gulf fix, that space between the tents and the sanctuary or between the world and God where no man can go to except there be a bridge. And that bridge is Jesus Christ. And so the man takes his lamb. And he finds his way to God. He crosses that great gulf fix. He comes to the door of the sanctuary that is rep that represents Jesus also. Jesus said, I am the door. He's met at the door with the priest. The priest represents Jesus too. That priest leads him to the altar of sacrifice. And there the man confesses his sins. He disrobes. He transfers his sins to the innocent Lamb of God. And by his own hand, a knife put in his hand, he kills the Lamb of God that represents Jesus dying at the cross of Calvary. And the great promise in the Bible is, if any man will confess his sins, God is faithful and just to forgive him his sins. And not only that, to cleanse him 
from all unrighteousness. And then we could move on to the labor and that's what represents the labor, represents the cleansing of the man. It also represents the man making a commitment of himself to Jesus Christ. So the man is forgiven, the man is pardoned, the man is saved at the cross of Calvary. Ah, but friends, listen, he is saved but not fully changed. He is saved but not fully sanctified. He is saved but he is not fully like Jesus. And so the sinner must move on from the labor and enter by faith into the holy place of the sanctuary. And I say by faith because the holy place represents heaven and we really can't get there. When he enters the holy place of the sanctuary, he finds there the table of showbread, which represents, of course, the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And friends, there is life in food. And if you don't believe it, then try to go without eating for some time and you're going to soon find out that you cannot live without eating. And so it is spiritually. Man shall not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In that holy place of the sanctuary, there is also a golden altar, which is also called the altar of incense. There our prayers may rise, made fragrant by the incense of Christ's righteousness. Prayer is to this the spiritual life, what breathing is to the physical life. How long can a person live without breathing? Well, not very long at all. And friends, people are dying spiritually because they quit praying. The only problem with that, of course, is they do not feel it physically. And because they don't feel it physically, they think everything is all right, while spiritually they are little by little gradually dying inside. Today... We want to look at the third piece of furniture in the holy place of the sanctuary, and it's called a candlestick. Now, what's the purpose for a candlestick in a sanctuary or anywhere else for that matter? Well, for sure, it's to give light inside the sanctuary. If you look at the sanctuary, it has a roof on it, it has walls, there are no windows, the walls are fairly thick with these very thick curtains, and there was no light in there. Now try to imagine these walls are all of gold and the only light in there is the candlestick and they would light these seven candlesticks and the light would be reflecting all over this gold, all over the room. It must have been an amazing place. Well, what is the significance of light spiritually? If you turn with me to John chapter 8, we're going to look at John chapter 8 and verse 12. Let's go there if we can. John chapter 8. And we're looking at verse 12. Let's see here. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Friends, if you want to live life successfully, let me give you a little bit of advice here. It comes directly from the Bible. Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. Follow me. Follow me and you can't fall. Follow me and you'll do well. Follow me and you will succeed in life. I guarantee it. And I'm here to say that this is so. I've had the experience and I appreciate Jesus Christ fully. Now, how many people in the world does Jesus enlighten? You might find this a strange, uh, a strange concept, but the Bible actually says that every single person in the world is receiving light from Jesus. If we go to John chapter 1, go, to, go with me to John chapter 1. And we're going to find where it says that. John chapter 1, look at verse 9. And here we have it. John the Baptist, no, excuse me, John the Revelator, John the one who wrote the book of John, says this, that was, talking about Jesus, that was the true light, which lights every man that comes into the world. How many men get light from Jesus? 
Every single man in the world. Now, isn't that amazing? There are people in the world who've never heard the name of Jesus. There are people in the world who know nothing of all of that. And yet, Jesus claims to be their light. Jesus claims to communicate with them. Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And he does it, and it's true. Now, they may never have heard his name, Ah, but friends, they know right from wrong. And there's a Holy Spirit who's communicating Jesus Christ to these people. And if they are responsive to the impressions that the Holy Spirit is making on their lives, it's amazing to me, but there will be people in heaven who have never heard the name of Jesus, who have never participated in religious ceremonies and rituals, who will be in the kingdom because they were responsive to the Spirit of God as the Spirit of God was communicating with their minds and with their hearts. And they will be judged according to the light they've been given, just like we are. Now, the symbolism of the light goes further than that, and we'll continue to look at this. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. The book of Revelation is a book of symbols. You all know that. And we're looking at more symbols right here. We're in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, talking about the candlestick, talking about the light. And John, the, book, the, the author of the book of Revelation, says, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven candle, seven golden candlesticks. And in the middle, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, that represents Jesus, clothed with the garments down to the foot, and girt about the path with a golden girdle. So here we have Jesus standing amidst, in the middle of the seven candlesticks. What do the seven candlesticks represent? Well, friends, listen. The Bible answers every question that you can ask about it, about what it has to say. So if you find a, a question in the Bible that you need an answer to, don't go looking to commentaries, don't go looking to preachers, don't go looking other places. You may find the right answers if you do going other places, but the Bible is its own interpreter. The Bible will has a, a, an answer to every question you might ask about it. And so, in verse 20, we're still in Revelation chapter 1. The question is, what do these candlesticks represent? Notice the answer is in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. That's who they represent. And so, the candlesticks that are... That is, that used to be in the sanctuary here on earth, the sanctuary that Moses built, represented the people, the churches that should exist later on. So, Jesus, the light of the world, sheds light to the candlesticks. The candlesticks are meant to be the churches which shed light unto the world. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at verses 14 to 16 in Matthew chapter 5. Here we have it. Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men hide a, a candle and put it under a bushel, but they put it on a candlestick and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And I want you to notice here it says, let your light shine. It doesn't say make your light 
shine. Friends, if you receive the word of God, if you receive Jesus Christ through his word, if the word of God becomes part and parcel of who you are, you are the light of the world. And you don't have to make it shine. You're going to shine automatically because Jesus is in there. Where Jesus was, he made an impact. And he can make an impact in this world by being in you. If you go to Ephesians chapter 3 now, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to uh, just see this further. That the church is meant to be the light of the world. Ephesians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 8 to 11 in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul speaking says, Unto me who am less than the least of all the saints. Notice, Paul is feels himself to be less than all the saints. Unto me is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. What a privilege, what a blessing, what an opportunity Paul had. He had the opportunity of presenting Jesus Christ to the world. Well, friends, that's our that's our charge. That's what God wants us to do. That's what we want to do also. And to make all men see, verse 9, what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world have been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers of heavenly places might be known by the church. Notice, by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. God has an intention to make known by the church the wonderful riches and wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there you are. It's been God's purpose all along. That's what the candlesticks represents. God, Jesus, is the light of the world. And then he says, turning to us, he says, you also are to be lights in the world and I will take possession of your heart and the light that is in you will shine out to the people outside. Mark chapter 16. We're going to Mark chapter 16 looking at verse 15 and here's the great commission to you and me because we are deemed to be the light of the world. Verse 15 in Mark chapter 16. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, proclaim the good news to every creature. That's the mandate. That's the great commission. But now listen, we need to become practical about this thing. Have you ever met people who uh, like to eat your food? Who like to drink what you have in the refrigerator? Who like to take space on the couch? Who like to sleep in the beds that you own? Who like to take up your time, but they don't like to work? Have you ever had a brother-in-law like that? Have you ever met someone who likes to take but they don't like to give? Well, friends, there are people like that who call themselves Christians. They eat as they read the word of God. They pray eloquent prayers and by these they are strengthened spiritually but to no purpose. They don't use their spiritual powers to help others to win them to Christ or to reveal God to the world. To become like Jesus, we need not only to read the word of God and to pray prayers, we need also to go out with that which God has given us because we are the light of the world to share with others the love of God. We cannot neglect any of these and remain balanced. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 4. I want to share with you something that I just discovered lately. I hadn't seen this before. This is Numbers chapter 4. We're looking at verse 7. Numbers chapter 4, verse 7. This is going to be talking, I believe, about the table of showbread. And I want you to notice one word in specific. 
Um, Numbers chapter 4, verse 7. And upon the table of showbread, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put thereon the dishes and the spoons and the bowls and cover the, and covers to cover withal. And the continual bread shall be thereon. Now in, uh, in the version that you're looking at, the word, there's one word missing there. Continual. Well, if you go down that same column where you read in, in uh, Numbers 4 verse 7, you go down right to the bottom where there should be an asterisk. There's no asterisk, but it says verse, it says chapter 4 verse 7, and then it says continually. That's the word that's missing. Well, here we have continually Continual bread upon the table of showbread. There's always bread upon the table of showbread. Taken over that word, verse, that word. And now we go to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. We're going to look at the um, altar, the golden altar, the go- altar of incense. And I want you to notice here, this is Exodus chapter 30. We're looking at verse 8. And when Aaron lights the lamps, oh no, we're looking at the lampstand, lampstand, and when Aaron lights the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generation. And so now notice the word perpetual. There's going to be continual bread on the table, there's going to be perpetual light in the lampstand. So now we go to the golden altar, the altar of incense, Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. And we're looking at verse 2 in Leviticus chapter 24. Verse 2. Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil, olive beaten for the light, to cause the lamps that burn continually. So did you notice that? Continual bread, perpetual light, and continually incense there on the altar of incense. And all these words are translated from the very same word, which is also translated daily in Daniel chapter 8. So these three words, continual, perpetual, and continually, are translated daily in Daniel chapter 8. And we're going to go there. I want you to see it. Daniel chapter 8. I have a reason for doing this. Now, go with me to Daniel chapter 8. And we're looking at verses 11 to 13 in Daniel chapter 8. Yea, he. Now this is talking about the little horn power. We're going to discover more about this later as we go on in our little series. But we're talking about a little horn power which is antagonistic towards God and God's people. Yea, he magnified himself even to the Prince of Hosts, Jesus Christ. He made himself to be as great as Jesus. And by him, that is the little horn power, the daily, which is the perpetual and the continual, sacrifice. The word sacrifice is implied here. It really does not exist in the text. So we're going to skip it. We're not going to read the word daily. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, Jesus. And by him, that is by the little horn power, the daily, the perpetual, the continual was taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given unto him against the daily, the perpetual, the continual, by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and it prospered. Then I heard one saint, that is one angel speaking, and another saint or angel said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily, the perpetual, the continual, and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary 
and the host to be trodden under foot. So try to get the picture here. See what we're looking at here. There is a great war going on between Christ and Satan. There's a great controversy between the two. Christ has a plan to save humanity, to secure the universe forever by the cross, by the atonement that's made at the cross of Calvary, by the commitment that he wants through baptism from his people, by the strengthening of them, by a a word that is continually used, read, taken in, received, by prayer that should be perpetual, and by witnessing as well. Satan, through his earthly alliance, one of them being, of course, the little horn power, Satan is determined to trod underfoot Christ's sanctuary. Why? Because, listen, friends, the sanctuary is what God has created in order to solve the sin problem, and Satan is not happy with solving the sin problem. And so he tries to destroy as much as he can the sanctuary. You might wonder, why is it that so few denominations, so few Christians, understand anything about the sanctuary in the Old Testament? And here's the reason. Satan doesn't want people to understand. And so there are very, very few people who even study the sanctuary at all. But the solution to the sin problem is found right there. And so he knows that God's plan of salvation is explained there. He wants to do without it. So do you know what he does? First of all, he tries to do away with the word of God. Oh, there is a war against the word of God all the time. He tries to do away with the daily perpetual study of the Bible. Does that make sense to you? Well, it ought to because the enemy is doing all he can to get rid of the word. There are some of us who do not study our Bibles daily, continually, perpetually. Oh, somebody might say, well, you know, I don't get anything out of it. I, 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 I... It's just not interesting. It's it's boring. And I can't understand it anyway. Well, you know, friends, I don't have a solution to that except one. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. That's the solution to that problem. I, my wife grew up, when, when we first became Christians, she had a very difficult time with the Bible. She found it boring. She found it hard to read and all the rest. She didn't want to spend much time in it. Well, there was only one solution. She just had to persevere and read the Bible. And you know, it's like someone who's anorexic. Have you ever met someone who's anorexic? And you say, well, I have a solution. They come to you and they say, hey, can you help me with this anorexia? I I need some help. And you say, well, there is a solution to anorexia. All you have to do is eat some food. Oh, but I don't like to eat food. But it doesn't digest well because, uh, but I, you know, it's just not what I want. Well, friends, it may not be what we want and it may not be what we like and it may be painful at first. But let me tell you that there is only one solution to anorexia, and that's food. And so it is with the Bible. There's only one solution to reading the Bible, to enjoying the Bible, to getting something out of it, and that's read your Bible. Second, Satan reduces prayer to a ritual. He's done that in many places. He has people repeating the same song and dance over and over and over again. And friends, I know wherever I speak, because I grew up in a religion where we would take some beads and we would repeat the same prayer over and over and over again until, friends, listen to me. Listen to me. There was no way that I was understanding. Not so much that I didn't understand the words, but after a while, there was just the same words repeated over and over again, and my mind tuned out, went somewhere else, was playing sports, was playing hide-and-seek or somewhere, or something like that with my friends, and I could repeat all those words while thinking something else. It doesn't work, and Jesus spoke against that kind of prayer. But the devil has brought it in. He brings in Eastern mysticisms. He brings in the chant of mantras. He brings in self-hypnosis. 
There's such a thing going on today in all of Christianity that the Eastern religions are moving in and they're moving in so subtly that the Christians think that this is something great that's happening among them. And there are people coming in and teaching them mysticism, teaching them that they can have an experience with Jesus. They can talk to God personally if they will only empty their minds fully. And so they get on their knees and they begin uh, to chant a mantra, one word, over and over and over again until they're not thinking anything. They've emptied their minds totally. And then some being comes along to communicate with them. They think it's God. And let me tell you something. It is not God. And so, Satan attempts to destroy the intimate daily connection, the perpetual relationship, by mechanical and strange approaches to prayer. Thirdly, Satan says, let's take witnessing away from the individual. Why don't we give it to the institutions? Let's make it an institutional matter. Let's let the Salvation Army feed the poor. All we have to do is walk over to Walmart during Christmas time and drop a few coins into that kettle and we've done our duty. The Salvation Army will feed the poor. Well, friends, that isn't God's plan. It isn't God's plan. Somebody else will say, well, let's let the government provide welfare for the poor. Let our nursing homes care for our parents. Let's let the pastors do evangelism. Let's give them money and call it square. Well, friends, God does not call that square at all. He says, you are meant to be the light of the world. You and me. And friends, I can't say to my friends, hey, Joe, why don't I give you a little bit of money? You go over to the gym and exercise for me. Would that work? Well, everyone knows, practically speaking, that that doesn't work. Joe can't go over there and exercise for me. Joe would get all the benefit and he'd get the money too. Well, it's the same way. We can go to a church and we can light candles and we can do all kinds of stuff and hope that somebody else will do the work and not ourselves. It isn't God's plan. Friends, God plans, God plans to depend upon us to be the light of the world. The world is in abject spiritual darkness. If we do not receive the character of God so that is to reflect the character of God, if we do not live out the love of God towards others, if we do not reach out to the world with the word of God, then millions upon millions will remain unenlightened. They will be lost. They will be deceived. They will perish. And we will be at fault. I like to tell the story of... Um, a few times when God has used me to be a light in this world. I used to work in the mines. Um, there was a time when my brother-in-law and I were partners. My brother-in-law was a big man, 250 pounds. He was an amazing uh, miner. We were doing very well, a lot of production between the two of us because we were partners. One day, the leaders from the mines came down and they said, we want to take your brother-in-law to be a shift boss, and but we understand that you guys are very productive. We don't want to lose any product productivity here. So you have the opportunity, you have the, the option of choosing any man you want in the whole mine. Well, I thought that's that's great. In any case, they came back a few days later and the, 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 the deal has changed a little bit. They came back and they said, we got four men here. Four men for you, from, from which you can choose um, to be your partner. And friends, I was just a new Christian and I was excited about sharing the word of God and I wanted somebody with whom, to whom, towards whom I could witness. And so I prayed to heaven. I said, Lord, I'm looking at these three men. I know who they all are. And you can send me any one of those three 
But this one, I cannot witness toward. That one was difficult. I thought he would be difficult. He was a boxer. He was a hockey player. He was a womanizer. He was a drinker. He used to love to fight and all of that. And I thought he was beyond hope. And that's just the one that I didn't want to have as a partner. Well, who do you suppose I got? That's exactly the one that I got. And so because I got him, I determined that I would not witness to him at all. There was no point wasting my breath on on this fellow. Well, friend, it doesn't work quite that way if you're working together and it comes to be Sabbath and you have to go home a little bit early and I had made arrange with, arrangement with the minds that I might do that and so it came to be Friday afternoon and halfway through the ship and I'm, I'm leaving to go home and he's looking at me like, what in the world? Where are you going? The work's half done. You're going to leave me to do it all by myself. And so I had to explain what was going on. Well, I still decided that I would say nothing more to him and we would work together and something would go wrong with his machine and he'd pick it up and throw it down the drift. He would sit down and smoke and curse the air blue and smoke the air blue and then he would go back and go back to work and after a couple of weeks like that he came to me and he said, don't you ever get angry? And I would uh, say, well, there's not much point in it, you know. And uh, he couldn't understand it because he got so angry all the time. Well, I noticed after a few weeks that his temper had gone down, that he was reacting differently. And by and by, he would begin to ask little questions about my religion. And he didn't ask very big questions, and I dared not give him any more than he was asking. And so because I wouldn't answer the question any more than he was asking, it uh, kept curiosity alive in his heart. And little by little, he asked more and more and more questions. By and by, I quit the mines and I went to a little missionary training school. I became a Seventh-day Adventist and I left. Well, I didn't hear from him for a long time, like one year, I think. About a year went by and he came to where I was living, about a hundred miles away. It was a Friday night. It was nine o'clock at night. It was dark. I heard a knock at the door. I went to the door and it was him. And he didn't even bother to say hello. His first words were, do I have to be baptized? Those were his first words. And I invited him in. We spent the weekend together. I answered all his questions or tried to. In any case, we had a good time. The next weekend, I made my way a hundred miles back toward home and went to visit him at his house. Now, a strange thing had been happening that I didn't know about. When we were there, his wife looked a little puzzled. Um, uh, her husband and I were talking about spiritual things because we were used to doing that and she was puzzled by it because he hadn't spoken to her much about it. As a matter of fact, every Saturday morning he would pick up his lunch pail and he would go away like he was going to work. But his wife knew he wasn't going to work because his lunch pail would be empty and she was beginning to suspect that he had a girlfriend and every and every Saturday he would find his way to her. But as we were talking, more and more she began to realize, aha, her husband was going to church on Saturday and he didn't want to tell her. Well, then that drew her into the conversation. By and by, both of them were baptized. And to this day, they are strong Seventh-day Adventists. Not only that, he and my brother quit their jobs after some time and they went into a place called Elliott Lake, a brand new city surrounding a uranium mine. There was no Seventh-day Adventist there. They went over there, went to work on construction. Within two years, they raised up a little church. And to this day, my friend is the head elder of that church. 
and my brother today, of course, is um, a conference president. Well, I have plenty of stories to tell. I don't have time to tell them all. All I know is that we have a sanctuary here, and this sanctuary has all the solutions to our sin problems. And once we've gotten baptized, made a commitment to God, we can enter into the sanctuary and do three exercises. The three exercises are the study of the Word of God, to pray without ceasing, and to share with others. And if we will do these things faithfully, we will grow in grace. Ah, friends, how is it with you? Do you take the Bible seriously? Do you take time to reach out to God in your own personal devotions and to pray? And when you meet someone, do you have love enough for them that you want to share with them what God has shared with you? Ah, friends, listen. It's worth everything that we can become more and more like Jesus and be the light of the world. God bless you all. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.